in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Good morning. <clears throat> Yay, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Come, come. Hey, hey. Man, aren't we blessed to be able to come like this and just worship together in the presence of God? Just like this. It's like amazing. It's such an amazing privilege. And I think that word that Sue brought about the price that had been paid is like when you when you offer it against what we have received and what we are receiving, it's just the most amazing thing. And that is grace, isn't it? That is grace. So, so today, <coughs> I want to carry on a little bit from where we were l- last time. We were talking on the giants in the land word. I, I feel like we're coming into a season where we're like breaking through into a, a slightly new season. It's new for us, you know, and it may not be new for other people, but it's new for us. And um, we had this sort of picture a while back when this word got released about coming into the promised land. And <clears throat> I don't know, in everyone's mind's eye, when they look at breakthrough and when they look at, yeah, revival coming or whatever, you see it in a certain way, don't you? And you, you perhaps you see it as whoosh, suddenly everything happens and it's the answer to all your dreams and desires and uh, hopes and all of that stuff. But actually when, <coughs> when we look at the... Uh, Actually, what it was like when Israel came into the promised land, that was when the action really started. <laughs> That's what, you know, it didn't. Yes, there was big harvest there, but they had to contend for it. And they had to follow a very kind of narrow line of obedience, listening to the voice of God, the guiding of uh, his anointed people at the time, the angels, whatever it was that was leading and guiding them. And if they kind of stayed in step with it, all was good. And if they didn't, it was kind of pretty disastrous. And um, I'm always... (coughs) Excusez-moi. I've got coffee here. The coffee thing's still open if anyone wants to go and grab one. There's nothing better than having a cup of coffee with the Lord, is there? I think he likes coffee, because sometimes when you're drinking it in the morning, you pick it up and think, where did that go? And I think he drinks it. <coughs> Just a thought. <laughs> Don't quote me on that theology. I think he must like coffee, because after all, he brews. <laughs> Courtesy of Bethel. That's what their cafe's called. <coughs> Hebrews. Anyway, where was I? I was getting all emotional and passionate and completely lost it now. <clears throat> but yeah, Israel coming into that into that promised land, it it wasn't just oh there we go, it's all over, we can sit down and have a rest now. No, actually it's the point where they began engaging fully. They began they had to listen, they had to contend, there was a bit of battle going on and uh, you know (coughs) we are designed to be overcomers this is the thing it's kind of right in our DNA it is exactly how we the, the father when he originally created us right back in the garden he says here we go put you in the garden right take dominion 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Take dominion, rule over the land. We were designed to actually take authority in a particular situation right from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm all, always very interested to look at the patterns in the Bible, okay? I know you can almost take any verse and make it say anything if, if you've got a, a will to do that. But what I'm interested in is the patterns that go through. And you've heard me talk before about the patterns through Scripture about provision. You know, I believe there is a blueprint which you can suck out of the pattern that goes right the way through Scripture from one end to the other. Um, that, as, as God blessed Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Now, that was a pattern that was set up. Okay, You receive what you need, but then you can also overflow into the lives of others. That's a pattern. And it's reinforced in, uh, when Paul's talking to the Corinthians when he says, my will for you is that you have every sufficiency for yourself, but also enough so that you can be generous on every occasion. It's the same pattern, okay? I'm going to bless you, you have enough for your own needs, but also so that you can bless others, you can overflow into the lives of others. And, you know, there's a number of these patterns that go through Scripture. And uh, the one that I want to pick up on today, which is, you know, perhaps not one that you necessarily want to hear, but is that there is supposed to be contention in our lives. There is supposed to be trouble. But we are not supposed to live under trouble, okay? We are supposed to be overcomers. We are supposed to be more than conquerors. We are supposed to kind of overcome that and take dominion of the things around us. So that's what I want to have a look, just a brief look at this morning. Um, you know, <clears throat> what in, even in the Old Testament, in Judges 3, uh, there was a curious scripture, Judges 3 verse 2, where it says, these are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced, experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to the generations of Israelites who'd had no experience in battle. Okay, you know, here's part of that pattern, right? God purposefully left certain nations in the promised land so that there would be ongoing warfare, so that there would be ongoing contention because... It was in their DNA to begin to take authority, to take charge of the land, to overcome obstacles and resistance. And so, you know, that's the pattern in there. And we can look forward into the New Testament, John 16, um, verse 33. In this world, you will have trouble, said Jesus. But fear not, for I have overcome the world. And, um, you know, so that, that is the pattern. That's the, that's the kind of slightly moderate news, okay. The good news bit is that he has overcome the world, you know. And that's what we want to look at because I think <clears throat> as we are in this position, as we are stepping into slightly new areas for the church, we're beginning to kind of push on the door of seeing some really good things released, some good finance released, some good healing released, some good salvations released, all of these things. Hey, guess what? There is contention. 
there is contention and it seems to be whipping up a little bit of a storm around us and you can, you've got two options. You can either run away and hide and pretend it's not happening or you can say, Lord, what have we got to do here? Like, what is the key that you want us to step forward? How do you want us to take dominion in this situation? How do you want us to take authority? And I think authority is the word, okay? And we're going to explore this a little bit more now. Um, so, what were these all about? <clears throat> so, okay, authority. You know, Jesus said, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go and do the stuff. Okay, so there, there was an essence there where Jesus was saying what had happened through the cross. This is right at the end of Matthew, so it's after he's been raised from the dead. You know, he's, he's whooped the devil. He's kind of disarmed him and defeated him and made a public spectacle of him on the cross. And now all authority has been given to him. And he is saying to his disciples, go therefore and do the stuff. And the, uh, in the other books of the Bible at the same stage, he's saying, he commissions his disciples to say, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper, you know, do all of these things. Go into all the world and make disciples. These signs will follow those that believe. They will lay their hands on the sick and they shall recover. Okay, so this is Jesus commissioning. I have this kind of wonderful picture. I mean, authority is an amazing thing. It's, and, you know, I have various images of it from experience in life. And my first one that I thought about was cast your minds back to when you were at school, okay, and you got the supply teacher in for the day. And, you know, as a bunch of kids, you would think, come on, <laughs> here's, here's some action, here's, this is going to be an easy day, uh, because it's not your normal teacher, they're new to the, th- they don't know anyone's names, they don't know the system, they don't know how things work, and the kids will push. Leo's nodding, he has been that soldier. He, uh, anyone who has taught and has done any supply teaching ever, and my wife is a teacher and she's told me many times, you go in and it, it's quite difficult to take authority because you don't know the kids. And actually what happens is they start pushing, they start testing, they start pushing you to the limits. They say, oh no, we don't, we don't get homework set on Mondays, sir. <laughs> <laughs> no, we never get homework set on Mondays. That, no, no, only we always get let go ten minutes early, you know. And they start trying it on. They start fiddling around with the truth in order to try and manipulate and get their way. Whereas the kids actually have no authority in the situation. They are the students. He is the teacher. She is the teacher. They're the ones that actually have the authority. But the kids will push it. They will push it and, and try and put that, that doubt in the mind of the teacher. Oh, perhaps normally they do go, yeah. And if you get some slightly canny 
students in there who know how to play the system. They can sound quite convincing sometimes and begin to push the limits so that 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 whole air of authority begins to be released. And, and it can be a miserable time for supply teachers. It really can. It can be so, so difficult. It can, you know, maybe not be a terribly enjoyable experience because even though you may think you know what you want to do, you've got this constant thing pushing back on you all the time. So authority, you have got to know that you've got it. And it's, it's kind of like, the, you know, when, if there's a you're downtown on, a, on an evening, you know, and there's a bit of a scuffle breaking out and, you know, you could go and try and intervene, but you do so at the risk of your own health and well-being. However, if you're wearing a blue uniform and carrying a warrant card, you can just turn up on the scene and suddenly... There's a slightly different, well, sometimes there isn't a different reaction, but there should be. Uh, quite often, you know, there will be. As soon as people see the police coming, they know they have the authority to do something about it. Okay, they know they have that thing. And that warrant card says, I can arrest you in the name of the lure. Okay, have you a license for that minky? They have the authority to step in and actually make a difference. And the <clears throat> there is that, that kind of dynamic between the two parties where one knows they're in authority and the others know that you're in authority. And therefore, the magic works. Okay? Sometimes the magic breaks down and they think, well, I don't care. You know, I, I don't care who's in authority. I'm going to do it anyway. But generally speaking, if you know you've got the authority... You are empowered to act and change and make a difference, okay? Now, that's the bit where I think we're a little bit sketchy as Christians. Do we know what authority we have? Do we know that authority? Are we convinced by it? You know, there is... Uh, one of, when, when Jesus gathered his uh, disciples together, he called the 12 of them together and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. He, you know, Jesus delegated that authority. This was even before he was crucified and had full authority that was kind of donated or given to him. Uh, but he still gives that authority to the disciples and they go off, the 70 of them in pairs, and they come back rejoicing and, and praising God that, that even the demons obeyed their, their words in the name of Jesus. It was that authority, that delegated authority. And they were very, very excited about it. And actually Jesus was very excited about it as well. And if you read the little accounts of that in the Gospels, it, it kind of indicates he may have done a little jig. He was full of joy, it said, when they came back. You know, it's difficult to think. Sometimes we get these kind of wrong ideas in our mind that Jesus was a very doer, sort of serious person who kind of only ever... But it actually said he was anointed with joy more than his companions, wasn't he? He had that oil of joy upon him and he celebrated. And I think we forget that sometimes. And so he gave that authority. Um, what we're going to do is actually look 
look at what authority has has God given us, you know, through what was done on the cross in a minute. But, you know, the, the only strategy that the enemy has, because really the enemy has no authority at all, does he? Because, you know, in Colossians 2.15, that was that verse I just said. It said, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, uh, he, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, so we know that at that moment when Jesus died on the cross, when he shed his blood, when he took the punishment for all of our collective sin that had been committed, was being committed and would be committed at any time in the future, he kind of took that, dealt with it, took it upon himself, incurred the disapproval of his father, okay, and this is kind of a slight area where John MacDonald and I differ slightly because I think the father did have to turn away from Jesus at that moment because... You know, sin, if you look at how sin is dealt with, right the way, look at that pattern again, you know, through scripture, wherever God's people entered into sin, they were banished from his presence. God could not dwell with them at that moment. He had to, for some reason, look away. And so when Jesus hung on the cross and said, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he was he was fulfilling a prophecy that was done. But I really do think there was a moment of separation that came between Father and the Son at that moment as he took the punishment. I think it's a very fundamental part of the, the, uh, the gospel, the, the power of the gospel that Jesus took the punishment on himself, that he had to, uh, he incurred the penalty that would have been ours. We would have been separated from the Father had not Jesus done it on our behalf. Okay, so that's just kind of where I sit on that. Okay, I'll just throw that in for free. It's, I really think it is like very fundamental and we need, to, we need to have it kind of deep within our hearts as we move into this stage of revival and we see people coming into the kingdom what salvation is all about how it all happened. We need to remember the cross. We need to remember the blood. We need to remember the price that was paid and also the victory that he won on our behalf. So, getting a bit distracted. But <clears throat> I, do, I think these things are important and you, <laughs> we, we need to anchor them as we're moving into a time of rapid change. You need to be sure what you believe. Okay? And Jesus did that for us and we are eternal, eternally grateful. And so he completely and utterly defeated the powers and principalities. You know, the word says he disarmed them in one place and defeated them in another place. So no arms, no feet. They are not very mobile anymore. And, you know... (coughs) It's okay. You know, but it was done. It was done once and for all. It was finished. When he said, it is finished... He meant it was finished. It was finished. The price was paid. He never needed to go back on the cross again to kind of do a bit more because we'd kind of slipped again or whatever. No, it was done once and for all that the price had been paid. And, the, and the, you know, the fantastic thing about grace, and we're in the month of grace, so I should mention it somewhere along the line. But the fantastic thing about grace is that way is just 
open. It is like, like Strictly Come Dancing. The voting is now open. It is like we have a way that we can get to the Father. You know, just nothing gets in the way. And it does not matter what you have done, what you have said, what you have thought, because he does not see that anymore. He really does not see that anymore. He only sees, we, when we come to him, we are clothed in Christ. He sees his beloved son coming towards him. He does not see the filthy rags that we have chosen to put on ourselves. And it is amazing. It is outrageous. It is extreme at the risk of upsetting some of the theologically minded of you. Yes, I do believe in extreme grace because I believe it is extreme. I believe that it doesn't matter what you have done, you can come to the Father through Jesus Christ. But, but you have to come through faith. You have to come to him believing that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have to believe that you can have access and that that price was paid and you have to accept it. Well, it's the same with us taking authority. It doesn't just automatically come upon us. We don't suddenly kind of, oh, everything's rosy now. No, you have to receive all of those things. You have to take the promises of God. They, you have to hear them in your ear, speak them with your mouth, then faith begins to rise up and suddenly you kind of know that authority and you can begin to receive some of those things. You can come to him. And that's the same with salvation. I do not believe that everyone is automatically saved. Okay, because of what Jesus did on the cross. I chuck these things out there because these are kind of mistruths that are being kind of flaunted around in, in the world of Christianity at the moment. Universalism, it's called, where people believe that everyone's saved anyway, that there is no hell, therefore it doesn't matter what you do. That's, that's the tainted extreme grace that says we can just do what we want because Jesus paid for it and we'll go to heaven anyway. You know, there's an element of truth in that. But it is not the way that we should live. We should be knowledgeable of what that sacrifice was, what it cost him, what he, the punishment he took on the cross, and live accordingly. Not by, you know, as it says, I think, in Hebrews, shall we go on sinning? By no means. No, Romans, isn't it? By no means shall we keep putting Christ on the cross by the way we live. No, Paul says. We need to live in a way that is pleasing to him. Just because Jesus has paid for every sin, just because the price has been paid, does not change the way God views sin. The pattern through the whole of Old Testament scripture is that sin made him angry. Okay, And God is the same yesterday, today and forever. Sin still makes him angry. He still doesn't like it. He really does not. Just because Jesus has died, what Jesus has done is made a way for us to not receive the effects of that sin and to have access to the Father. But we receive it through faith. You know, So I think this, this whole idea that you just kind of live... However you want, you sleep with whoever you want, you take drugs, you do whatever. It's completely wrong. 
is completely wrong. And I think if you're even beginning to debate that thing in your mind, you've lost your way a little bit because you don't understand what the Father's heart is towards sin. He really does not like it. And that will stay the same. Anyway, I'm digressing again. Where are we getting on that? Authority, authority. It's that what I'm feeling like as we, as we step into this, you see, that there are some amazing breakthroughs that are literally about to happen. But it relies on us knowing our authority. It, knows, it relies upon us um, sort of understanding our identity, what, how he has placed us. So Romans 8.15, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves. We sang that today in the worship so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought you, uh, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Now, this was kind of something that we've um, just, the lights came on a little bit at Kingdom Life School this this year when uh, I think John was talking, John uh, Wilson and, you know, amazing, amazing talks from that. Um, But I, I suddenly saw the whole kind of story of the, prodigal son, you know, and the elder brother in a slightly different light because, you know, you, you think of the prodigal son coming back and that's a wonderful story of grace and yes it is that no matter what condition they found themselves himself in, he was able to come back to the father. He came back to the father, okay? He, he made the journey, he set off uh, and said it with a repentant heart because he rehearsed in his heart, you know, um, he said, you know, he said, if I go back and said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, please accept me back as your servant and all of this stuff. He'd rehearsed this little talk and he barely got a chance to get it out. You know, he did begin saying it, but the father, as soon as he saw him coming, ran to him, kissed his neck, robe on his back, sandals on his feet, ring on his finger. Ring is the symbol of authority. That was the authority in those days. It was the father's authority. It was probably a signet ring that allowed him to take the authority of the house again. You know, and that, that's a wonderful revelation. But then there's the other bit, the elder brother. And I think in the past, we've probably just thought, well, he was just a bit of a grump, wasn't he? He was like, he was there and he was like a bit jealous of the younger brother who'd been off and squandered all of this stuff. And you tend to look at it in that light. But when the father comes to him, when the elder brother says, you know, I, I've been here all these years slaving and doing everything that you wanted and helping to run the house and you've never given me a single goat, you know, to have with my friends. And um, he, uh, the father says to him, son, you know, you've been with me all this time. Everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. And I, I suddenly thought, yeah, this, you know, this sonship is not just identity in knowing who we are, that we've got a loving father. This is like a royal identity. This is, we are not just sons and daughters. We are 
princes and princesses, you know, and we have the authority of the house. We have the resources of the house. That's the father there saying, like, everything I have is available to you. All of those resources are available to you at this time. You know, you didn't even really need to ask because they're yours. You don't ask for something that's already yours. And I think sometimes we can live in the Father's house and just not know what we have access to. And I think that that's the mindset. And that, that word that came out about getting washed, John, it was John, wasn't it? Wherever John, there's John. Uh, brought this word about kind of just getting washed. And immediately I thought, you know, what is that? What is that filth what, that, that like gets attaches to us? And you know what I think it is? I think it's wrong thinking. I think it is like when we think that, oh, I need to do this in order to be happy and, and, and you've kind of missed the plot a bit, you know, whatever it is. And rather than coming to the source of all happiness, of real joy, we kind of go into other places and try and satisfy those things. So what actually cleanses us is the word, you know, and it talks in Ephesians, doesn't it, about being washed with the water of the word because that word comes upon us and corrects that wrong thinking. It begins to reinforce that identity that we have, that royal identity that says we are sons and daughters in the king's household and that actually all of the resources of heaven and earth are available to us. But just like the supply teacher, if you don't believe it, you won't be able to pull on it. If you know the system, if you know what it is, if that full assurance of faith begins to rise up in you and you get that confirmed sense of identity, suddenly things become available. You know, I've been listening uh, a lot in our, in our house group to the um, Bill Johnson series, The Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind. It is superb. It is amazing. And I want to try and rotate it around all of the house groups at some stage. Um, we've got a couple copies of it. But it really is good about just adjusting. It's like allowing God to change you into a new person by the renewing of your mind. And how does your mind get renewed? By being exposed to the truth of the word. And we had a great story this week about how the disciples were in the boat going across and he was up in the hills praying and all of that sort of stuff. And he, uh, he, he basically said, go over to the other side, I'll be with you later. You know, and he, off he goes to pray. And, and in the meantime, you know, the storm whips up in the middle of the um, Sea of Galilee or whatever it was they were going across and the disciples start to fear for their lives. And... Um, and they think they're going to die, and then Jesus comes walking to them on the water, and, and he calms the storm, gets in the boat, and, you know, just begins to teach them and say, you know, where was your faith in all of this? Can't you see, can't you hear, can't you even remember what has just happened? They literally just fed 5,000 10,000 with women and children, people with a, with a kid's packed lunch. They'd just fed another 4,000. They'd, they'd already experienced the calming of the storm, I believe, at this stage when Jesus was asleep in the boat. And, 
you know, they'd seen the pattern laid out. They'd seen that when God says do something, when he says go over the other side, that is the authoritative thing. He has said go, therefore, all of the circumstances must match up in order for you to be able to achieve what he has said to you, okay? Let me kind of just say that's slightly where I'm at with the whole building thing, okay? I believe God has said, go over to the other side. Therefore, the circumstances will match up in order to achieve that game. It's a simple logic for me, and this is part of my transition of changing and becoming like a little child, you know, just believing that because he said it, there is a way. There's a way to do it, and it will become apparent. But what he was saying to them was, you know, he demonstrated various things, hadn't he? When he gave the little kids' packed lunch to them, he divided it up into 12 bits, and you can imagine them getting like, you know, a fish's head, and a, and a little kind of nobble of bread or something. There was two loaves, or, or five loaves and two fishes, weren't there? So, you know, you'd have got a half, half a little loaf and, uh, and, and a, about a third of a fish. Right, go and feed those groups of 50 and 100, he said. Jesus did not do it. He gave it to them and said, you do it. So he gave them the word, and because he was there... They kind of believed it and went. And as they started handing it all out, the resources multiplied. His word came. That was the authority. That is what we're doing. You feed the people. Okay? And they said, well, Jesus said, you feed the people. Just, Just follow the instructions. They followed the instructions and it was multiplied. They saw it again. You know, Jesus said... You go to the other side. The storm whips up. Their reaction should have been, well, he told us to go to the other side. So this storm is in conflict to what he has said. And therefore, peace be still, just like Jesus did. He modelled it out to them time after time after time. And as Bill said, you know, why, why he, he was cross with the disciples for missing it when, when, you know, like, like the time when he was asleep in the boat and, you know, they were going over the other side and they woke him up, Master, Master, save us, save us. And it's, it's kind of the perfect picture of intercession. You know, the, the disciples went to God, who was asleep in the boat, shook him and uh, said, you know, save us, save us. And he got up, peace be still. He, he saved them. It was intercession and it was an answer to intercession. But then he got cross and said, where was your faith? Because he had been modelling out to them that they were supposed to be doing it, that they were supposed to be taking on this thing. They were supposed to be, uh, if he had said do this, he thought he would relax and have a little snooze because he's delegated it to the disciples. Now, how long do you think you would keep your job if you go and ask your boss to do the thing that he has asked you to do. Not very long, I think. He has asked us, he has delegated authority to us. That is the pattern that runs right the way through scripture. He gives us the authority, he gives us the tools and says, go and do it. 
And quite often our response is to come back and say, oh Lord, please do this, please do this, please, 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 please. You know, it's that same reaction as in the boat where actually he said, you do it. That was his command to the disciples. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper and speak to people and say, look, the kingdom of God has come near you. He didn't say pray for the sick to be healed. He didn't say that. He said, heal the sick. Go and do it. You know, and that's another study altogether. But if you look through, Jesus never prayed for a sick person to be healed. He did some peculiar things, like spitting in their mouths and putting his fingers in their ears and all sorts of mud on their eyes with spittle and all of that stuff. Quite slightly unhygienic things. But he never actually prayed for them and said, Father, will you heal this person? He modelled it out. He said, all authority has been given to me. You go, therefore, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, raise the dead. He kind of, it's a delegated authority he's put into us. But we have to understand. We have to get out of supply teacher mode that says we don't know what's going on and we have to accept the authority that he has given to us. And I think he amply demonstrated what he wants us to do. He modelled the whole thing out time and time and time again. I was thinking, we're, we're getting into the season where sometimes you might get a present. And, um, you know, like when you, you sometimes can get a present and it might be some kind of whizzy thing, electronic, that you can plug in and press buttons. And sometimes you, you like give it to your little kids or whatever and you take it out and it's ready to go and they want to get in the box, you know, and they'll just play with the box and they'll be completely happy with the box. The box is great and, you know, that's, that's a lovely thing. But actually sometimes we're like that with the gift that has been given to us. We've been given an amazing gift. Salvation is an incredible, incredible gift. And that word sozo, which means salvation, is so much more than one day I'll fly away and be with him when everything's getting tough down here. Sozo itself, it incorporates provision, prosperity, health, well-being, You know, that's what sozo means. It's wholeness. Wholeness. It means restoration back to the way God originally intended it. And that whole thing was incorporated in the cross. That whole sense of well-being, that whole health right the way across. And we have got to get it inside ourselves because that is what Jesus wants us to do. How do I know that? Because it's what he did. He went about, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he cleansed the lepers, he calmed the storm, he fed the hungry, he lifted condemnation off those that were in guilt. You know, it's a complete package. It's it's everything. It is all there. He paid taxes with a gold coin out of a fish's mouth, for goodness sake. What are the chances of Peter catching the right fish? To get the, how did that blooming gold coin get in there in the first place? Was that fish just swimming along? <laughs> just at the right, how did it bite the hook? <laughs> With a gold coin in its mouth. But 
he, you know, you never, ever, ever see Jesus blessing a sickness. You never see him doing that. You never see him blessing the storm. You never see him starting any of that stuff. You never see, he only ever, it said he healed all who came to him. Every sickness, everyone who came to him, he healed. He demonstrated in that moment the heart of the Father. The Father's heart is to see the kingdom come. Whenever Jesus did any of these things, whatever it was, any kind of demonstration of the supernatural, he said, look, the kingdom of heaven has just come near you. Now, repent and believe. That's what he said. He, he even broke the laws of natural science, of physics, walking on the water because he knew what he had to do. He had a mission and nothing could stop what he was going to do. Nothing. Because those rules didn't apply to him. It's like the rule of keeping the doors open in the preach. There are no rules. We are free. So, yay God. Yeah. I think we've got a the reason why we're rabbiting on about this a bit at the moment, okay, this whole thing of salvation, this whole thing about the gospel, I have said the same thing in a variety of different ways, is because we need to get it inside us. We really do. And I'm not preaching to anyone else other than me, okay? I am trying to get it inside myself. I'm trying to understand my identity. And the more I read scripture, the more I expose myself to some of these kind of wonderful people that are expounding the scripture, I'm thinking, this, this is the model. This is is it. This is Jesus Christ himself is perfect theology because he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Look at what I do to understand the heart of the Father. And look at what he did. He healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed the leper. He, he did all of those things. He, he went about, Acts 10.38, he went about doing good and destroying the works of the devil. The devil has no authority except for what he can make you believe. If he can tell you a lie and get you to believe it, like the kids in the classroom with the supply teacher... We always get to go 15 minutes early on a Friday, sir. If he believes it, then that is so. That is what happens. The devil is the same. He comes to you and casts a a doubt in your mind. Has God said, this can't really be true because look at all your experience. That can't be true. And we believe it and we accept it and we take it. And that's where we become established. And, and what we're trying to do now is expose ourselves to the word of God like this, where we can believe that actually it's supposed to be a different way. And we have got the word of God and we've got our experience and we've got a choice to make. Which one are we going to hold in higher authority? Is it the word of God or is it our experience? And for me, it's the word It's what I am looking at in there. It is the pattern of scripture right the way through that says this is the heart of God. The heart of God is to heal the sick. 
forgive sins, remove condemnation. All of those things, that is the heart. That is what heaven looks like. So when he got us to pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let heaven come down to earth. Let heaven be manifested. What else can that mean? Is all of, is all of this stuff happening up there? Is sickness happening up there? Is lack happening up there? What's his will up there? And his will is for fullness, it is for wholeness, it is for sozo, it is for shalom. Another great word which we translate as peace, but it includes just so much more than that. That whole blessing and just well-being. We have got to believe this is our royal identity, to be able to reach into heaven and pull down the kingdom of heaven and get it to manifest around us. That is where we're going. That is where we have set our direction. That, And we will not rest until Jerusalem is established. We will give him no rest. We will give ourselves no rest. We will keep on declaring the word. We will keep praying for the sick. We will keep declaring these things until faith begins to rise up, until we become completely convinced of our royal identity. Okay, let's stand. I think we've, got, we've just got five minutes and I think it would be really good to just begin to take on that royal identity, okay? And I think the best way to do that rather than kind of do a big kind of thing is, to, is for us to get together in groups of about three or four and let's just pray for, find out if there are any needs, anything which comes against those things which I've just been talking about. Is there sickness? Is there pain in your body? Is there something that needs to move forward? Is there a lack? Is there a need in your life which would be solved by a manifestation of the, of the kingdom of God? So, groups of two or three. So, let me just pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you are kind. You are good. We just bless you and we just ask you to keep revealing the kingdom to us. I I pray that you would give us childlike faith to receive it. That we would change and become like little children because otherwise we won't see the kingdom of heaven. So let it come, Lord. Let it come. I just bless each person here. I say let the kingdom of God come in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's split off now and just... Pray for one another and just pray for the kingdom of God to come in their situations.